This is Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois. The podcast that helps you destroy self-limiting beliefs, unchain your potential, and create the meaningful life you were made for. And now here's your host, Navy SEAL founder of Impact Actual and the Impact Unchained course, Rob Dubois. I've been asked many times why I chose to become a Navy SEAL. There are two real reasons, as I've told most people most times. First was because I wanted to be tested. I, had, I actually joined the Navy because I went to three recruiters, Army, Navy, and Marine Corps, and said, I had one question, who's got the toughest commandos? And that was my uh, juvenile perspective on what I wanted to do with my life, my own self, my own background, being tougher, being stronger, being safer, which flows into other conversations we've had over here about PTSD and the uh, earlier origins of it for some people. So being being tougher, being the toughest I could was one part of it, testing myself, kind of like a, I, I liken it to the Sundance of Native American traditions where young braves were tested by having their skin cut or, or other, other uh, challenging, painful acts to, to get through. A friend of mine is uh, Maasai in Kenya, and he actually went through the Maasai rite of passage for young men. At 15 years of age, they're circumcised publicly without anesthesia. And if they wince or fall down, they fail. And the tribe will always remember that. Now, an interesting thing is that James Cavuyo is his name, one of my uh, guides from uh, the Serengeti trip with National Geographic called Migrations. He said that uh, it is illegal. The, it's illegal in the, the eyes of the state because of hygiene and breaking old practices and so forth. But he and many of his young colleagues said, we're doing this. We want to do it. And the tribe said, hell yeah. The elders said, yeah, if you want to. So he did it. He survived it. And he said he wouldn't do it again in a million years. So rites of passage is something we miss today in the Xbox-enabled generation. Kids can believe their commandos because they can go to Amazon Prime and buy armor and, and, and get AR-15s on the corner and go around acting like tough guys. That doesn't make you a tough guy. Having gear, being able to play Call of Duty does not make you a tough guy. Actually doing tough things makes a person a tough guy, boy or girl. The other reason I wanted to become a SEAL is because I wanted to expand myself, to make myself a better version, the best version I could imagine. And rewinding to those three recruiters, each one of them, Army, Navy, and Marine Corps said, well, I guess the Navy, if you're, if you're looking for the toughest commandos. And I'd never heard of a SEAL before. This was 1985. So I think Charlie Sheen did his thing a few years later with the big movie. So I said, okay, cool, I'll be a Navy guy. And, and that was the beginning of that path. The other reason, like I said, to grow myself as, as far as possible, to be as capable to contribute, to make as big a difference in the world I wanted to do. And we'll talk about that and have talked about it in the past, that it's not the end-all, be-all. Being a Navy SEAL is not the best thing a person can be. Being a Navy SEAL for the guy who was supposed to be is the best thing you can be. If you're supposed to be a shoemaker or a florist or a teacher, those are the best things you can be. There's no one best thing to be in the world. There's just being truly yourself is the best thing. And speaking of true to yourself, Eric Bond, welcome aboard, brother, co-host of Beyond Your Limits. What is up? How's everybody today? We are going to talk about being the best you can. And so the whole intro for why I wanted to be a SEAL and why I wanted to be the best I could so that I could make the biggest difference I could is the ultimate segue for my guest that I am deeply honored to bring on, a guy that I've known for a long time now uh, from work we did together in the Navy. Uh, I was not in his teams or unit to be specific, but we worked. We were both frogmen and we both worked in the world of intelligence. And welcome aboard Captain Pete Weichel, the bullfrog. Well, thank you. Great to be here. I'll give a quick background for, for uh, Captain Peter Weichel here. Um, you'll do most of the fill-in as far as Trident or whatever else you want to talk about on, on the bio stuff. But I knew Pete as a, as a SEAL captain, and it will surprise no one that he had a Thomas Magnum mustache. And it will be surprise people like me that he doesn't have a Thomas Magnum mustache today. <laughs> and the first time I saw that was at your your luncheon, your retirement luncheon, and you shaved it off. That, that the the long standing, ever present part of your your you know your Navy SEAL life was that big mustache, and you showed up and said you were 
not going to wear it anymore uh, at the time. And then you sh- shocked me again when you said you were going off to do something. Would you mind? Let's we'll rewind a little bit. Let you talk about you know what you got, how you got into the Navy, what you chose for the Navy, and and, and then of course the 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 big uh, punchline of how you went, what direction you went after you left the service. Yeah. So like like your intro, you wanted to be the best commando and everything. So the Vietnam War was going on. I tried to quit high school and go in the army and that I read the book, the green beret and that didn't work out. I got chained to the house. And then, so the Navy had a cachet program where you could literally sign on the dotted line and on your birthday, you were legally in the Navy because you could sign for yourself. So I went in this cachet program and then on my birthday, I announced to everybody, I am, I am officially in the Navy. And, (laughs) and so, you know, and then I said, and two weeks uh, after I graduate, I'll be in Great Lakes for boot camp. So I go to boot camp, and I'm in regular Navy boot camp. And after five weeks or six weeks of, all right, men, let's fold clothes. Because back then, in shipboard life, you had this small locker. It was about two feet by two feet or even less. And you had to fit an entire seed bag in there of all your uniforms. And you had very little space for, like, one set of civilian clothes. So they, they devised this way of folding clothes that took a long time to do it, and you had to friction iron all these. You would, you would wash them, wring them out, and then you had to take your soapbox with a, a handkerchief and, and iron them and then fold them. And that's how you, So after doing that and tying knots for six weeks and going to classes that totally bored me, I looked out the window and I saw these guys in these green uniforms. Nobody was marching. The flags were over their shoulder. They, they looked like McHale's Navy. And I said, who are those guys? They said, UDT SEALs, suicide missions in Vietnam. And that's the second time I heard that exactly like that. I said, do they have to fold clothes? And someone said, and I said, I'm going to check them out. So, so I went and met my first SEAL. Richard J. Turi, he was a photographic intelligence man. The SEALs had rates back then. They, we didn't have a rating. They had Navy ratings. And he did two or three tours to Vietnam at three Bronze Stars. He was one of these type guys. Great guy. And the first thing he said to me was, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country, which resonated with me. And the second thing was, you can do anything you want in this man's Navy. Just don't get caught. And I said, I'm in, you know, so I took the swim test, the PT test, and I got in. And unlike a lot of other guys, in high school, I played drums. I ran a little bit across country and track, played stickball on the street. I never lettered in anything. And I was the lowest rated guy in the class. And I'll fast forward, and I wound up, when I retired, I had the highest rank. I was the only guy decorated for heroism. And... um and I was a bullfrog. I was one of the longest serving Navy SEALs in history. I'm like probably right after Rudy or right after Rudy and one other guy, maybe the number three guy with the actual longest service as a Navy SEAL. So that's how I got into that. I got in the teams and I'll just go over the teams real quick. I served in underwater demolition team 21. And then they, they put out a call for two guys to go to SEAL team two. Forty of us put in for it. They took two of us. I went to SEAL team two. I got a degree in political science, went to SEAL Team 1, Underwater Demolition Team 11, SEAL Team 5, U.S. Military Observer Group, Palestine and South Lebanon, then SDV Team 2, Special Boat Unit 20, Defense Intelligence College, the Naval Special Warfare Center is a Director of Strategy and Tactics and Professional Military Education, then the XO of Special Boat Unit 12, then the U.S. Marine Corps College of Command and Staff, three years in the Joint Staff, being the uh, Director of Counterproliferation of Weapons of Mass Destruction, the Branch Chief for J-3 Special Operations Division. Then uh, Commanding Officer of SDV Team 2, I went back there. Then I went to the National War College, which is the top war college in the country. Then Deputy Commander of Sox South in my last six years, the Office of Naval Intelligence where I built an, uh, an intelligence program, first started, it was called Trident, and, and then Naval Intelligence saw the utility of that. They reorganized into four pillars, and they made my program one of the pillars and named it after Kennedy, so it was a Kennedy Irregular Warfare Center, and Rob and I, we worked a lot of this sort of stuff in Iraq and Afghanistan, and 
and the efficacy of the program was I was doing better than major buildings that had three-letter agencies for the size I had. I only had 50 people, but our intelligence analysis led to the killing and capturing of a 1,000 bad guys a year. It was unbelievable. And I had great people, and he knows all the people I had. And there was one person, it was a woman, I'll just mention the, the first letter of her name. It started with a T, and she was the bomb. She could find anybody, and she could outwork everybody 20 hours a day for six months at a time. And, you know, so I, I had these, I surrounded myself with the smartest people, a lot smarter than me that I could find. I'm just a bull in a China shop. You know, I break enough China and people will, will leave me alone and say, give, give them a seat at the table before he breaks any more China and give them a paper plate and plastic knives, forks and spoons. And so I wound up building a $26 million intelligence program. And, and that was over the fit up five years. And then that wound up being the yearly budget, you know, years after I left. So, so it was a good program. We saved a lot of SEALs lives. We got rid of a lot of bad, evil people in this world. And, and then I retired. So we were at the luncheon and I told people, I said, you know, I'm going to do a couple things. I want to be a jazz drummer, but in the meantime, I'm also going to help homeless veterans find a place to live and, and, and a job. I still wanted to give a little bit back. Although, you know, when you do close to 40 years, some people say, oh, you were giving back. I said, I don't have to give back. I already gave. Uh, I gave 40 years. You know, if you hadn't served, you're the one who needs to give back. I don't need to give back. But all of us that have served, we can't get it out of our blood. We can't get it out of our psyche. We can't. And most importantly, we can't get it out of our heart. So we can sit, we continue to mentor and serve people. So I'll leave that that intro alone. It was kind of long, and and I'm ready for all your questions. So, like you summarized there, service becomes part of our DNA. It's a second nature, isn't it? We can't not do it once well, we do it. Did it become part of our DNA, or was it in our DNA? It maybe we're drawn to it, drawn to the work because it's part of our makeup going in. And that goes back to upbringing and other cultural things, the neighborhood, the, you know, having a community, uh, letting other moms swat kids' butts, you know, stuff we, we'd like to see a little bit more of these days. Not necessarily a bunch of abuse, but having, yeah. having the upbringing that inculcates that idea of being a citizen who serves. I did, I, you know, I didn't have that upbringing. My father was a heroin addict. They went looking for him. They took my mother, put her in jail. My grandfather got me. Then I went to a bunch of different boarding houses, lived with my mother for a period of time, and I, and I did so many temper tantrums and said I want to live with my real father, so she sent me there. First day, I'm with my father. We're in the bathroom. He lights up a cigarette, locks the door. He puts a belt around his arm. He takes out uh, a spoon. He pours white powder in it, puts a little water in there, takes a lighter, cooks it up puts it in a hypodermic needle, shoves it into his arm, and he goes into a nod. That, that, that's my first recollection of my father. Wow. And I lived with him for a period of time. His girlfriends, he lived with his mother then. They told me he came out of the army, but he came out of prison. And, uh -huh. and so I lived with him a period of time. I carried the works. I was a mule. I was supposed to be in the second grade, but I was hardly ever in class. And I got, I got moved around. I went to like four different second grades. I went to 16 schools by the time I got out of high school. The last four years, I was with an Italian family, relatives that gave me backbone. And so I, I, I lived this life of adversity. And, and I only had a family life for the last four years. And then, but I did, all along the way, I did go to a military school for two years. And when I was younger, I went into Suffolk Sea Cadets. So I was this little militaristic guy for some reason. And, um, and, and then when I got in the teams, as you well know, when I got there, UDT-21, we had guys that were in World War II that were at Normandy mm -hmm. in Vietnam. You know, so you talk about mentors. And if they saw something in you, they kicked your ass. You know, it's look, you could be better than this. You need to get your ass to college. And, you know, you could be an officer one day. Some did. Some said, well, you need to get to college, but maybe you shouldn't be an officer, you know. <laughs> and back then, we had, it was during, of course, during Vietnam, there was a lot of people that went in the Navy because they didn't want to go in the Army. And the teams literally had about 15% of the teams were probably criminals. Uh -huh. You know, we had, a, we had a guy, he was 23, raped a 16-year-old girl, and we never saw the guy again. 
you know, so we had guys like that. And it was, it, it, it was like uh, Animal House on, on triple probation steroids. It, it, it was like you, and as the teams evolved, they got more and more discipline. It didn't mean they didn't have discipline when it came to the mission. But when it came to everything else, there was no discipline, you know, and there were fist fights. The initiations were out of control and and guys would get married and they would kidnap the guy after he got married and hold him for a day. And and the new wife would be wondering where her husband was. Yeah, all kinds of stuff like that happened. That goes back to the expression they used in that in that silly movie, Navy Seals with Charlie Sheen. Trust me with your life, but not your money or your wife. <laughs> A culture at the time, not now. I can vouch for my own years in the teams, guys. You know, there's a higher code of honor as far as not and not not. Uh, I would not say uh, uh, whitewashed. There's yep. no kinds of Snow White innocent people, yep. but but certainly not to betray one's brother. Yeah, know? well, nobody messed with people's wives back then, even back then, because that that was a good way to get hurt really bad. Yeah, and some guys did. They got hurt really, really bad, and then the other ones went, uh oh. You know, that's not a good idea. Right. Too many right. other women around, you know. So. That's a good, a good Bad life idea. lesson. And unforgettable for the other guys that saw it. Absolutely. I was with, a, when I was in Bud's back in 96, I saw, I, I'd been 10 years in the Navy before I went to Bud's, and I met a guy who was coming back through dive phase. What took you so long? Uh, my rating, CTI. Oh. That's right. A That's non-source right. rating. I was blocked out for the for the listener's benefit. A CTI is a Navy or an NSA spy. I was trained as a counter-Soviet guy. Learned Russian, Russian order of battle, uh, Russian culture, and then spent ten years stopping Russians until there were no Russians to stop. I, I guess I can take credit for that. Hey, but I'm half Russian. You're going to stop me? What, what, not what only the the not for? only the mean ones. Boris okay. and Natasha. So the the by the time, as Pete said, I had a, a source rating or a non-source rating. My yep. rating was was Navy spy for the NSA, and I wasn't allowed to go to the teams. It was it was excluded. That's but true. by the time I was in the Navy for ten years, but the detailer who gave us orders was an old friend of mine. I said, "Dude, let me go. Let me try." And he said, "I'll give you a waiver, you crazy son of a bitch. You'll fail, and we'll get you back anyway." But that never happened. Yep. But the. Um, one of my uh, classmates was a SEAL, a SEAL with some years on the teams, but he had to go back through dive phase because he'd been doing no diving for some years, and he wanted yep. to get reblued on that. And I joked one day, we're all sitting on the grinder, and some guy could, had misplaced his, his G-Shock and couldn't find his watch. And he said, hey, where's my watch? Anybody see my watch? And I joked, well, kind of the SEAL, his name was Bill. I said, he said, where's my watch? And I said, hey, check with Bill. He probably stole it because SEALs steal, steal shit. And Bill said, and I quote, no, man, you don't steal from team, guys. You steal from supply. <laughs> and that was true for my 10 years in the team. You yep. don't steal from team, guys. You honor the, the brotherhood, it's, and you do steal from supply because supply is there to give us stuff to work with. Absolutely. So You, you don't um, steal, you reappropriate. That's exactly it. This could be better used outside the supply locker. Yep. Okay, now now since we're talking team life, one of our favorite tactics for getting into supply was having uh, there were there were three women at the time, two or three women, young storekeepers. And so we take the buffest guy who was never me, and he'd strip down to his shorts and walk up to the front of their cage and start talking to them. Hey, how's it going, Tammy and T and, and Tabitha? Uh, and they're like, Oh, hi, 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 Tommy. And now they're they're like locked on having this conversation while the rest of us like little ants are scurrying over the fence and throwing things back out, knives and fins and masks <laughs> to each other. And then and then we we give them the, you know like, Okay, it's cool, Tommy. He's like, All right, girls, have a good day. <laughs> it was full on men and black kind of stuff, or I guess yep. Mission Impossible. But that's a terrific ramp up of a very long, very, very distinguished career. And I want to come back to a, a key part of that that you and I have been discussing and you shared in the Powerful Peacemaker workshop. Yep. But before we go back to that anecdote and this incredible experience you had that saved a lot of lives who were innocents, not just SEALs, tell us where you went after the retirement and why. So... I first worked for this company called America Works. I, I could have been a contractor and made a lot more money, but it was sort of like, and when I was in, there were a, a lot of very senior SEAL captains and whatnot and Commodores and everything, and, and they became contractors. And when I was uh, director of strategy and tactics, we, we let contracts out to write 
tack memos and things. And all of a sudden, I had all my bosses calling me sir and stuff. And I said, you know, this is really bizarre. And I'd be calling them sir, and they say, no, 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 Pete, uh, you're the sir now. And, you know, and so it's <laughs> like, um, I'm not writing point papers anymore. I spent 40 years doing this. I don't need to do this anymore. And I always wanted to be a drummer at a high school. I had no idea I was going to do almost 40 years in the Navy. And so about, I think, four years before I retired, I saw a drum set in a store. I went in, signed up for lessons, bought a kit, and then started studying again. And at the same time, I started working for this company, America Works. And first, I was consulting for them, and it was a nice paycheck in Washington, D.C. And they had me do things for them like testify before the Senate Armed Services Committee, stuff like that. And I went around. I was trying to get them a contract so they can open up an office in Washington, D.C. And, you know, just like team guys, you know, just go, go ahead and make friends. Well, I made friends with these, these two black guys that were in the Army that did that in the Washington, D.C. area. I finally walked in there. And at first, you know, they weren't talking to me. And I went into one guy's office and he had all this jazz posters and I said you like jazz and he goes yeah I said I'm a jazz drummer you are yeah and so we started talking and he called the other guy in and we all made friends and everything and then when it came time for the um for the selection for the the department of commerce ran the program not department of defense or the VA it was the department of commerce they saw America works, you know, and, and so they knew I was putting it. He says, that's Pete. He's put him at the head of the line. He's selected. So I got them in office. I did that for a while. And they introduced me to a woman and, you know, and I said, listen, I want to move to Connecticut, blah, blah, blah. And so I kind of quit that. But they they had a place in Connecticut in Old Lyme and I was moving to Griswold, which wasn't far away. So we had a good friendship and I moved there. And I started living farm life for a while, and that lasted about six years, and then I started studying jazz again. And now I have this incredible jazz band with Grammy Award-winning and critically acclaimed and A-list musicians. And if you ask me why I'm playing with these guys, I can only tell you it's directed by God. You know, now I can swing them. And when I introduce everybody, everybody's got a paragraph. I talk about all the great things. And then and then on the bottom it says, Pete is Pete is the band leader and drummer. He was a SEAL for 38 years and retired in command. Pete swings the band. That's all I need to say. You know, I don't have their big paragraph, and I'm not going to write down I was in all these SEAL teams. I swing the band. That's all. I'm the band leader. I'm in charge, and I swing it, and that's all they need to know. And so I play with these wonderful people and, you know, Rob, instead of us going out, breaking things, killing people and destroying stuff. And, you know, I I now put smiles on the faces of my audience and I spread the love. So it's, you know, we could have gone back into this thing. Somebody wanted me to run for Congress out there, you know, in that district out there. And they started doing some fundraising and it's like, no, I don't want to do this. I just want to do something different, live my life. And and jazz and drums was like my first love of if you were going to do a job. And I know I'm going to do that. And uh, a good segue into this, which I'll which I'll tell people uh, to read. There's a book called The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho. And he talks about your personal legend in there. And I'm not going to describe it too much other than to say it's like your destiny. And so I, the first part of my destiny was, 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 was being a man at arms, was being a Navy SEAL. Um, and, and, and not everybody gets a, really gets a destiny because life gets in the way. As a kid, you know what you want to do, but life gets in the way and you never get a chance to do it. Now, with all the adversity in life, you know, sometimes they said, man, this gets to be tough. But I didn't realize it was a real blessing. And so my first destiny was being 40 years of a man in arms. My second personal legend was now being the jazz drummer I've always wanted to be. And so how blessed am I to have two personal legends in a lifetime when 99% of the population never gets to have one. So God has blessed me. Um, As tough as it all has gotten, and you know how tough it gets, you know, in Lebanon – 
I'll just quickly go over that. I went to save a guy's life and I got blown up and I was burned 75%. And I survived that. And then I walked out of the hospital at 12 days and I went back to work in 30 days back on patrol. And first day I'm back on patrol, we're taking 50 caliber fire. It's like, woo, welcome back to South Lebanon. And so regardless of the adversity, just a quick thing on that, because um, I know I'm, we're, we're all rambling here and there's a lot of lessons in rambling, is that it, adversity builds your character. If you never have adversity, yeah, you're going to have some character, but your character is not going to be as strong as those people, you know, that have been forged in fire, so to speak, and have had a lot of adversity. So the, your adversity is what makes you. And, and there was a lot of adversity there, you know, uh, both mentally, physically, and spiritually. But what you realize at the end of the day is, boy, I hate that t- the end of the day, you know, the end of the hour. I, why did I even say that? That's stupid of me. But the most important thing is that you realize I, I didn't get myself out of the fire. I didn't save Sergio's life. I didn't heal that quickly myself, regardless if I went through all the SEAL training. God did that for me. And I am blessed. And I, 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 you know, he put me through this adversity to, to give me all those, all those experiences and to make me learn and grow from it. And I firmly believe that because uh, I, I don't think there's anyone human that can go through anything super tough and take credit for what they did. No, the, the commander in chief above is the one who does the directing on that. So that's what I did after retirement. And I added some stuff in there. That actually was the, the place. that was the big shock for me when we were at that luncheon where where you appeared with no mustache, and I asked you what you're up to next. My my assumption, of course, was okay. Navy SEAL captain retires. He either goes to let's throw some names out there: Lockheed Martin or Booz Allen Hamilton to be an executive and and use his Rolodex to bring in more business, or he goes to Blackwater, Triple Canopy, etc. Uh, and I expected one of those answers, and, and Pete said, I'm going to go to back to New England and study music. And I said, whoa, okay, that's what I want to – I've used that story many times, as I told you, yeah. to, tell, to show people you can do whatever you're thinking about doing. You really can. Some of my coaching clients have said, dude, you can go to Japan and learn sumo if you want to. Most people don't, but if you wanted to, it's possible. Yeah. And for an old Navy SEAL captain to go off and study music is is proof. And is, in a way, it's giving permission for people to do what they want. Yeah. You know, I try to read stuff about the brain now and everything because I'm 70 now. The older you get, you realize if you lose your brain, you're going to lose everything. And, 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 and some of the people with the biggest brains have a lot of physical you know, deficiencies or, or disabilities and stuff, and they can't run a marathon or they can't do this, but they have their brain and they can make wonderful contributions to, to society and other people. And so you got to maintain your brain. So, so there's this theory and I think it's more than a theory, but I read somewhere you could be a virtuoso in almost any field. If you have concentrated study of 10,000 hours in, in 10 years, well, if you do the math, it's a little bit over three hours a, um, a day, which isn't a lot of time, but it's got to be concentrated, dedicated, focused study in that. So I always tell people, hey, I can still be a virtuoso drummer one day. Uh, I just got to put in the time and I've got some background. So what I've decided, you know, I, I just bought a new house and everything. And I thought, OK, I've already got some of this time in. So I can probably get there in five years if I do to four to five hours of practice and study a day. And that also includes not just drumming, but listening to music. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start studying keyboard because I'm actually starting to write songs in my head. I sing them in and my, my keyboard player, Rob Aries, who plays for Average White Band, I mean, He's an institution in New York. Everybody wants to play with him. If you can get him, you're lucky. And he's a fabulous guy. He plays the most musical, beautiful solos. And he really, really swings. He played for Liza Minnelli. You name the person in New York. And, and, he, and he tours with Average White Band. And he also plays the bass. I was just at a gig a couple weeks ago. And the bass player comes in. He grabs the bass. And he starts plucking the place. Boom, boom, boom. Like it's his main instrument. He looks at me and he says, I used to own one of these things. He started out in bass. <laughs> And and then he and then he went over and he also plays bass for average white band when the bass player gets up on stage up front and he starts singing and stuff. Right so on. Rob 
I, I, I did a, you know, I sang it into my iPhone and I sent it to my sax player. He said, send it to Rob. So I talked to Rob and Rob says, there's a, and, and, and he said, you got a blues. Rob says, Pete, you got a blues, bullfrog blues. He says, he says, when I get back from, from the tour, I'll work on this thing and I'll put it out. I said, yeah, you're going to have to try to decipher my notes. He says, I know what you meant. So I actually wrote a tune now, and I want to really, I read a little bit of music, but I want to get on keyboard because I'll wake up in the middle, and I'll wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning with a tune in my head, and I don't know how to get it out other than try to yes. on my iPhone. Yeah. So if I can create doing this, and I can add to the body of knowledge of music, and, and I can make people smile in the audience and make them feel good, I did my, that's my new job. If the audience is happy, and I got to tell you something, you know, in the military, you do a good job. They stick a medal on your chest. And the difference is whenever they stick a medal on your chest, you really feel funny out there getting it. Mm-hmm. There's no smiles. It's a, it's a humbling experience. You get decorated for heroism and it's like, I, I need to be out of here. I got to get back to work, you know, mm-hmm. but when you're playing a gig and the gig is over, you get a standing in ovation and they want an encore and you got to play a second number. Oh my God. The feeling is like totally different. It's a little bit humbling, but it's like, wow, I move these people. I move the audience. And then you count down another song and you do it. And everybody's just intently looking at you and you move people. And Rob will tell you, you know, in the military, the higher you you achieve and rank and you start commanding and you're in charge of more and more and more people, you move people. But now I move people in a different way and kind of the same way, but, but different insofar as um, I'm entertaining them, uh, not mm-hmm. developing them, I'm entertaining them. And that's just a real gas. A different mission. Yeah, still leadership and a different band of brothers. And sometimes you got a band of sis- a sister in there. Cause you got, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's women that's, sing beautifully and they can swing on there there's women drummers that are a lot better than me you know and so it's so it's so much fun to play with everybody but it's a different band of brothers and sisters but i have to tell you something just like in the teams you know some of us have different political views and different views on things and and when it comes mission time there is no arguing. We, that stuff goes by the wayside. I play with cats. I know they're real liberal, and they know who I am. They know I'm a constitutional conservative. And I tell people, I'm to the right of Attila the Hung and Genghis Khan, but I have a heart. Um, and they try to figure that one out. They scratch their head. How does that work? But it does. And so I lost my train of thought, which I do now that I'm 70. Oh, about how I, you work with all types can be in the same space and yeah, respecting and, each and, other. Yeah, so you can, you can, you, you, you can do that. And, and so it's, it's giving your heart, it's giving your love. And you did that in the military to people, you know, because you love, you got to admit, Rob, all the guys we worked with, we loved them. Oh, I know what the point was. Yes. So, yep. so we go to play and they know what my politics is. You want to know something? We never talk about it. Mm-hmm. The mission is the music. You count, and this is the beauty. It's just like going on a mission. You start play, you count down that tune, you play the tune, and if somebody makes a mistake, they don't. But if I make a little mistake, they jump on my grenade and, and they 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 do something so nobody knows that I may have just made a mistake. Awesome. You know, so it's sort of like they'll jump on a musical grenade for you and everybody knows how to cover for everybody. And it's just like Thelonious Monk said, there are no bad notes, (laughs) you know, and this is the thing about society, which really pisses me off lately. And I don't like to get mad, but we become so divisive with some people. You can't sit down and have an intelligent conversation without people getting mad Absolutely. You know, and then going, oh, you're not my friend anymore, and uh, yep. I'll never sit and have a drink with you or anything. It's just, you know, loosen up. Yeah. And we become so divisive uh, or divisive, however you want, t- tomato, tomato, right? And, and that bothers me because when I, when I served for all those years, I didn't serve for one political party. And I told people, I said, one day I woke up, I looked at myself in the mirror, and I realized, hey, this isn't about you. It never was about you. It's, it's, about the, it's about the oath you took. 
And my oath says, I state your name. I, Peter I. Weichel, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And, the, and then it goes on. But that's, that's the most important thing. And what I realized was I said, wow, I didn't take an oath to a, a human being, not a president, not a political party. I took an oath to a body of ideas. Think about it. The Declaration and the Constitution are ideas with which we form our government and our society. And I thought, holy mackerel, my allegiance is to ideas. It's, it's not to any. We could, you know, we could take the United States, leave it, take our Constitution, go to Mars or Saturn or Jupiter, and start another country. We don't need 50 states. Mm-hmm. What we need is we need our Constitution. And we need right. to be true to the Constitution. So I, I defended all these people. I defended our Constitution. I didn't defend conservatives. I didn't defend liberals. I defended everybody. It didn't make a difference whether you were straight, you were gay, you were black, you were white, you were red, you were yellow. It didn't make a difference. I defended everybody and everything. And so did you, Rob, and so did everybody that serves, and or anybody that raises their hand, takes an oath, puts a uniform on, carries a gun, and goes forward. So we should learn to put all that stuff aside, have our intelligent conversations, learn better how to tolerate each other and love each other, because there's just too much hate in the world. And I want to pass a lesson on, I know we wanted to go into what you call, but this is a good segue since I mentioned the term hate. So um, I'm in the hospital, I'm burned 75%, and I'm in the plastic surgery burn ward, and there's a guy, two beds over, his name is Moshe Fishbein. And boy, did God give me like one of the biggest lessons of my life. So I'm looking at Moshe, and he's just, he's, he's an older guy, and but he looks good, and he is... He's real outgoing and gregarious and everything, and he had some skin cancer and on, on the side of his face, and so they were working on that. So one day I noticed he had uh, numbers tattooed on, on the top beyond his wrist. And Moshe, I see you have numbers tattooed above your wrist. I said, were you in a concentration camp in World War II? And he said, yes, I was. I said, I would understand if you did not want to discuss this at all, but would you tell me anything about it and teach me? He goes, yeah. Essentially, he he went to Auschwitz. He was in Poland. They murdered his entire family. He's the only survivor at 16. The end of the war, he made his way to Israel. He fought in in their war of independence, hooked up with a, a, a kibbutz that turned out to be a very rich kibbutz. You know, they have some really rich ones there and then ones that are not so rich. And they have different collectives, mashabs and stuff like that. So a, a kibbutz is like communism on a real, real small scale. And it only works on a real, real small scale. But it's not total communism. But they, they give everything up for the community, for the good of the community. And and so they, they serve a great a greater cause. And, and they get what they put into it. So so Moshe, you must hate the Nazis. You must hate the German people. And he looked at me and he said, Peter, this is going to surprise you. I don't hate either one. I said, why? He said, because I realized at 16 years old, it wasn't the Nazis that murdered my family and six million of my people. It was hate that did it. It's the most destructive force. And it was like, Wow. I just learned the biggest lesson in my life. And so we, we have too many people that hate each other. We have nutty people that go around committing murder. And I think a lot of this has to do with, with evil and with hate. And evil hatred breeds evil, and evil causes severe destruction. So... I never want to hate. You know, there's sometimes they do get mad. They go, oh, I hate that. And then I say, stop it, Michael. You don't hate it. You dislike it or whatever, <laughs> but you're not allowed to hate. And so the, the man who had his entire family murdered can't hate. What, yeah. What does that tell you about that man? You know? You remind me of um, the first three chapters of Powerful Peace. I talked in the first chapter, it's called Hate. And it's called that because I watched 9-11 with Arab SEALs. We were teaching them in the Middle East, and yep. uh, we all watched it happen live. 
Chapter two is called Harm, which is the subsequent, you know, when you hate, you harm. Yep. And then the third chapter is called Loss, and that's what the whole premise of Powerful Peace is about, is recognize this pattern of hate, harm, and loss, and it just cycles out of control. Yeah, you got me the book, and I'm going to read it. It just, you know, it's it, it'll. I'll, I, I just got it, and I, I went through different chapters real quick and everything, and, you know, it's kind of funny. You and I are on, we are on the same sheet of music, my friend. Yeah, Captain, that's Captain Pete, one thing that you just brought up something with the gentleman that you met there. Uh, so I had, I, I used to work at a bagel shop when I was 17, 18, 19 years old here in Buffalo. And every day uh, a gentleman would come in that had those, had those numbers tattooed on his arm. And I remember the first time I saw it being, being a 17 year old kid, I had an idea of what it was, but it literally made the hair in the back of my neck stand up. And yep. You know, I, I remember having conversations with him, and it, I don't think he wasn't quite like you know the gentleman that you that that you was, um, Moshe. You know, ready to forgive. You know, uh, ready to forgive um, or and not hate. He had he, he did have that level of I would say that level of hatred for for what he saw and what he witnessed. But uh, his perspective on on life and on the value of human life was something that I don't think anybody's ever explained to me in the terms that he did but those numbers yep. are, are just when you see them you're just like oh oh my god i can't imagine what you've been through which leads me to something else so, so you're you're actually as i'm sitting as i'm sitting here listening to you and getting exposed to you one thing i i've noticed is that you're a connection to the original seals back in world war ii that weren't necessarily called seals at that time that didn't come until unless i'm uh just want to make sure i get the story right that didn't really happen President Kennedy yeah. actually formed, you know, formed the SEAL units as as they've kind of become known today. Yeah. So you're a connection to those people in World War II, which my grandfather was in was in Normandy, was in D-Day and, and all that, to really almost present day what's happening in the SEAL teams, which is yep. wild for me to sit here and think about that there's like a an 80 year span that you have a some level of connection to. So how yep. has things change like you on the intelligence side so you look at you do a lot of work in intelligence you know maybe on a basic level how has intelligence gathering changed from when you first got into the teams to kind of what's going on now obviously things are a lot faster in intelligence but you know what you know kind of change there yep. what are some big changes that you've seen we back in the day you did everything and so intelligence gathering was a big part of the mission you know, s swimming in and doing nearshore hydrographic reconnaissance, and you could do that. You know, there were com there were ways to do it in combat, and there were ways to do it administratively. Um, uh, but there were combat ones, and and if you were going to do it like they like they did it in in the Pacific, uh, you were going to be shot at while, while while you were taking soundings. You know, <laughs> and, and the guys in those things, they actually used to, the the Japanese would shoot bullets at them, and then they would try to catch the bullets after they hit the water. There's some stories about that. You know, so frogmen have never changed. We, we it's the same. It's the same DNA for whatever reason. I guess God picks us and say, okay, you're going to be a frogman. You're going to be a frogman. Uh, you, you're going to be a frogman. So get the frogman gene in you. And so intelligence gathering was a big part and direct action was a big part. Where Army Special Forces was more of training indigenous forces and fighting with them. So our thing was DASR, direct action, special reconnaissance. There was more FID and unconventional warfare. Now, we're both capable of doing e each other's main missions, but we had a different focus. And the last war, everybody was just a door kicker, uh, essentially, because you got all those, those skills. Uh, but now you see SF going back to their traditional missions and you see SEALs starting to get back in the water and doing their tradition, more of their traditional missions. So intelligence gathering is a huge part of this. But what we have done better over the years is integrating more intelligence people, intelligence officers, intelligence specialists into the teams. And now we have a group that's actually focused on this. I think it's group 10. Or maybe it's a, it's not a SEAL team, but it, it's an, we have an organization that when I was building mine, Naval Special Warfare was really starting to build their own. 
and you know I've been gone for like about 12 years but one of the things I don't think they'll ever have is they won't have the same authorities as an agency has so there's like 15 16 different intelligence agencies you know you got uh, the CIA the NSA the DIA you got all these cat all these you know army intelligence navy intelligence and when you're an actual intelligence agency you have certain authorities that other people don't have you know I think naval special warfare works a lot more closely with them. And if you stop and think about it, Burt Calland, who I remember him when I first met him, he was lieutenant. He, he was a platoon commander in SEAL Team 1. He wound up getting a star. He commanded uh, naval special warfare. He commanded SEAL Team 6. He commanded Naval Special Warfare Command. And then after that, they gave him a third star. He jumped as essential more. Maybe they, they promoted him twice fast. I can't remember. And then he became the ADCI for military support at the agency. Wow, does that tell you something? We now, we now have a guy embedded in the CIA. And I talked to him a number of times, and, and you know he, he helped me out building my organization. He and his classmate, the reason I went to the Office of Naval Intelligence, because he played football at the Naval Academy with, with Admiral Porterfield. And Admiral Porterfield had two stars, and then he had one star. And he says, I'm going to give you a guy to, to, to build an intelligence organization. And, and then, because Porterfield was senior to him, and then like overnight, Burt Callan jumped over Porterfield, and now he had three stars. And his friend, who had two stars when he had one star, still has two stars. And then, I, I forget who was the, the director of the CIA. They left. Porter Goss became the acting director, and then so the number two guy in the CIA became Burt Calland. So that kind of tells you how much more of a primacy that naval special warfare puts on intelligence, because especially in the last war, we, we learned the speed of war is very, very quick. And in order, in, in order to accelerate it, so if you know anything about networks and terrorist networks, you, you, you don't defeat them by just keep on killing the number one guy, because it's just going to replace them. Everyone's got a chain of command it's going to be replaced. What you have to try to do is collapse the network. And so in order to collapse the network, you need tons of intelligence, and you've got to target it in such a way that you collapse the network. And, and I'm not going to give away trade secrets, but anybody knows if you have a big network and you want to get rid of it, you collapse it. You attack it on multiple angles. And in order to do that, you need incredible amounts of intelligence and you need the, the ability for the operators to move out quickly get all that information back into the intelligence cycle so it can go back into the operational cycle and then you increase that speed of war at that and and that's how you win well i, I imagine and it's about know, winning like i look at like the the bin laden raid and everything that was taken out of that from an intelligence standpoint i mean that would i'm sure you know, obviously a lot of that's classified, but I would have to imagine they had they had years and years and years worth of information and actionable intelligence they could take out of there and apply almost immediately. I'd have to think, right? Yeah, they could do that, but you know, as as soon as they capped him and and they got all the intelligence, I'm sure everybody in network, you know, it was on the news. We got all this stuff. You know, and this is a problem with the news. Everybody wants to know everything. You don't need to know everything. I don't want to tell everything to the public. It's none of their damn business. And the reason it's none of their damn business is because they know too much. It compromises operations. Because now the bad guys know that it's public knowledge that we got all this intelligence. So if you're in that network and everything and you know, okay, he's... He, they just got all of bin Laden's hard drives. You're going to immediately change. Those guys can shift on a dime and they do, you know, yeah, so literally, so, you know, something uh, we need to have a nice cup of shut the blank up sometimes. <laughs> There's a you can fill the in best the example. See, I didn't say anything bad. I said blank. Well, fill you can say fuck whatever on this want. show. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. So, yeah, have a nice cup of shut the fuck up. Let you the know. buyer beware. You're gonna we're gonna hear real talk on this show. Yep. Great example of that is when Bin Laden's own satellite phone was was identified in the newspaper. I forget who did it. The Washington Post. Somebody talked about 
yeah, one of the ways that bin Laden is communicating instead of just with couriers is with the satellite phone. Yep. And the fact that hit the newspaper meant that he stopped using the satellite phone the very next day and we'd lost that possible source of collection. Yeah, you instantly. know, they, they, they just got I'd like to take all the people in the press, stick them in a uniform, give them a gun, send them, give them about a week's worth of training and say, here, you go fight. You want to know something? Give them two days of doing that and they'll, they'll learn to have a nice cup of shut the fuck up. And they'll you protect know, the information. The, 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 the reporters in World War II knew they had a duty to protect tactics, techniques, procedures. They could write stories about courage and bravery and, and loss and, 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 and overcoming adversity and saving lives and, and maybe helping deliver a baby on the battlefield or whatnot. They never divulged classified information. You know, they had information, but they didn't write about it. They knew how to protect our forces. Nowadays, ah, no, I get so mad at that. When I was on the barge, you know, uh, it was supposed to be secret, you know, and we were on a four-point, we were on like one of the largest derrick barges in the world with the seventh largest crane in the world, and, you know, a press helicopter went out and found us and we're supposed to be the secret mobile sea base, you know, uh, 60, uh, 32 miles away from Farsi Island. And, um, <clears throat> and you know, you get there at a, at a week later, it's in the newspaper, you know. And, um, and after that, I went to Defense Intelligence College and, and, and they were given a lecture and they had some lady from the press came in. And, <clears throat> and you could imagine I gave her a mindful. I wasn't nice to her. You know, she started in with this liberal crap with me, you know, and I said, you know, you almost killed me. I didn't almost kill you. Yes, you did. You and your ilk, you know, and you almost kill a lot of people because you don't know how to shut up. Um, I was a little bit nicer, um, uh, but, but she got my drift. And, um, I think I way afterwards, I was told her to be a little, I was told to be a little bit nicer to these people when they bring them in, but, um, oh, well, um, so the, 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 press in world war two, and probably even in Korea, they were responsible, but these guys now it's sort of like everybody wants their like 15 minutes of fame. So if you could write a story and divulge something that's really neat that everybody wants to know, especially with the social media information just goes fast. And everybody wants to know everything about everybody. I don't want everybody to know what time I take a shit in the morning. That's my business, you know? Um, so um, it's at 8.33 every day. No, I'm only kidding. It's not everybody's business what everybody does. And then you get half these people out there, eight, five minutes, are taking pictures of themselves. And I mean, we got the biggest egos running around the planet now. How about a little bit of humility, you know? It's we don't become need, superficial. We don't need to see you on the toilet, you know, taking a crap, at, you know, or, or doing something else stupid, you know, telling the world, look at me, look at me, look at me, you know? Yep. <laughs> I had a sandwich. <laughs> this is the end of part one with Pete Weichel. Please join us next week for part two. Thanks for joining us on Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois, the podcast that helps you destroy self-limiting beliefs, unchain your potential, and create the meaningful life you were made for. For more information about Impact Actual and the Impact Unchained course, visit impactactual.com. And be sure to subscribe on Apple iTunes or wherever you like to listen so you'll never miss a show. We'll see you next time on Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois.